I Am The Fly is a podcast about a brief time in the late 20th century, when you could live in the East Village on a part-time waiter's salary and still afford to go clubbing, when sushi restaurants had smoking sections and MTV was commercial-free, when you could rub shoulders with A-listers but still have no place to post it. I am your narrator, David Klein, and I am The Fly. In this episode, my brother is the toast of London while I pour punch for the private school franchise. It's 1989, and the future is buzz. Easy to MTV Europe head of on-air presentation, Jonathan Klein. Almost as easy as words like bullshit, masturbatory, fuck, dadaism, and visual hype. An American in London, Klein describes himself as a volatile exile, a one-time ABC News T-boy come writer producer who has made good in the land of dreamy dreams, or, in this case, music television. Where else, he asks pointedly, could a guy of 27 get to be head of on-air presentation for a TV station that's seen all over Europe? It's summer of 1988, and my brother is the subject of a profile in a glossy British media magazine called InVision. Title, Klein Living accompanied by a full-page, low-angle photo of Johnny gazing coldly out the window of a London taxi. The feature presents him as a charismatic motormouth with an unwavering vision for MTV Europe. Among several forward-looking assessments, Johnny says the station needs to move beyond music videos and become a showcase for visual innovation. He says MTV Europe should reflect all of Europe, not just England. Also, VJ should speak as little as possible. Knowing your brother's a genius is one thing. Seeing him depicted as some sort of visionary in a slick magazine is something else. I immediately, dutifully even, run off a few copies on the Xerox machine at school, where I still have key access during summer months. Johnny is on a tear. In a few years, he's vaulted from doing overnight fill-in work at an ABC News affiliate to MTV's Times Square newsroom, to a position of power and influence across the Atlantic. By providence, luck, or miracle, he's found his way into an industry where his kind of manic creativity is prized. His mind operates at warp speed, generating ten ideas in the space of five minutes, maybe seven of which are feasible. And since the corporate creative process entails a lot of spitballing, eyeballs tend to rivet his way when he starts shooting out ideas smartest guy in the room? It's a fair description. Me? I'm just the tallest guy in the room. I wipe noses, zip jackets, comfort the crying. I refill disposable juice cups, distribute pretzel rods, and maneuver rain boots onto rubbery feet. At rest time, I read from a well-thumbed hardcover volume called Told Under the Blue Umbrella, a collection of stories published in the 1950s. 
the poppy seed cakes, in which a greedy goose stuffs itself with baked goods until it explodes, is a classroom favorite. When school ends, I oversee the extended day program, where kids horse around and play games until a parent or caregiver, usually toting a small sibling or two, can pick them up. More apple juice. More pretzels. I haven't got a single male friend who's doing anything similar. The other teachers are mostly married women in their 30s and 40s with kids of their own. Upper West Side liberals who get their tortellini at Fairway and love Paul Simon's Graceland and are very earnest about progressive education. Sometimes I wonder what's really driving me to pursue a path where money, power, and prestige will never be found. I truly get a kick out of being around young people, listening to them, reading to them, seeing things from their perspective. It's heartwarming, it's gratifying, but the singular, sincere nature of this kind of work occasionally has me feeling like a fraud. Part of me is still a hothead from New Jersey who wouldn't mind a life that rocked a little more. It would have bolstered my resolve to know that at the very same time, a guy roughly my own age named Robert Pollard is doing essentially the same thing as I am in a Dayton, Ohio public school while making records on the side with his band, Guided by Voices. Eventually, he'll celebrate our juice-centric existence in GBV's divinely dirigible-centric Blimps Go 90. It's March 1988, a few months before that article comes out on Johnny. I cobbled together money for airfare to fly to London over spring break and stay with him at his flat in hip Primrose Hill. I pack a journal because the last travel journal I'd kept during a solo trek to St. Martin, where I ran out of money, yielded my first honest-to-goodness short story, one Uncle Mike had praised in a recent letter. Dear David, I finally had a chance to read your short story on the plane to L.A. last week. Rob Lowe, nominated for Best Supporting Actor, Square Dance, invited Noni to be his date at the Golden Globe Awards. Cindy and I went to catch it on TV and do a few other things. Jason Robards, Jane Alexander, Winona Ryder, and Rob Lowe in a story about what it takes to get back home. Square Dance. You're a born writer, Davy. You have a nice, easy-flowing style far more suited to the novel form than the short story. You take your time, like to build up to things. It, it really reads like chapters one through four of a novel. Continue writing it. Chapter 5 should be a giant three-way sex scene with Alexandra, Ellen, and the narrator, and then go on with it from there. Maybe a novel of the intricacies of triad relationships, or the narrator goes on to something or someone else. I was really getting interested in it just when you stopped writing. So don't stop, unless you're bored with it. Love, Uncle Mike. I arrive at my brother's spacious, gloriously record-strewn digs, and the first order of business is to purchase a futon. His not anticipating my eventual need for a bed 
does not feel like an especially welcoming gesture, and characteristically, he offers no apology or explanation. It's just, oh right, you'll need to sleep somewhere, won't you? So onto the high street we go, bro with a bike messenger bag slung over his shoulder, stuffed with promotional LPs scored from MTV's offices. As we sally forth bedward, we stop in at various music shops where he trades in LPs for cash. We return with a futon, the cost offset by vinyl. When evening settles, we head to Mr. Kong in Chinatown for Peking Duck, the best in London, I'm assured. Inside knowledge of fine eateries is a Johnny specialty. When he lived in Queens, there was this fantastic hole-in-the-wall Thai restaurant he took me to, where they seemed to happily accept his cooking suggestions as the price of his continued patronage. Like his own special shrimp dish, which involved a bit of flattening prior to quick frying, in which Johnny could never order without a pantomime of crustacean hammering. He was an early sushi adopter, when the concept of consuming raw fish still filled the average American with dread. At sushi restaurants, he asks knowledgeable fish questions and always orders a maki roll with shiso leaf on the inside. At least in part, it seems to me, to establish simpatico relations with the waiter. He overtips in the same grandiose performative way. He wants the server to walk away going, wow, what a generous, amazing guy. And to show me how it's done. At Mr. Kong, an exchange of knowing banter takes place about the duck broth. But as promised, it's world class. Back at his flat, we smoke up a giant hash joint, the British way, with tobacco, which makes me hack my brains out and make one side of a new mixtape titled No Weak Shit. First up, of most major urgency, is Sort Soul, a Danish band whose name means Black Sun and whose lead singer has an arm stunted by thalidomide. Johnny says they partied in epic fashion on a recent weekend in Copenhagen. Sort Soul's duet with Lydia Lunch, Boy Girl, is the opening track. Girl, 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 girl. Boy, 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 he cried out, boy, boy, my, my, After that, it's the Stomach Mouths, Stockholm garage punks named after an item called from a tragically misbegotten Swedish translation of John Kennedy Tool's A Confederacy of Dunces. My Life is Like a Stanley Knife by Golden Strings. Buzzcocks worshippers from Maastricht, Netherlands. And this band from Boston called The Pixies, who sound nothing like their name suggests. I'm at the banquet of my dreams now, completely at liberty to feast on these rare and exhilarating sonic morsels. And what a treat it all is. When Johnny's with you, really with you, fully participatory, as he is now, cueing me to the next song and the next and the next, oh you fucking need this one style, there's nowhere in the world I'd rather be. It's glorious. It's the reason I'm here. Yawns and goodnights are exchanged. He pads off to his room, and I flop on the freshly bought futon in a state of happy exhaustion, the memory of its awkward purchase blurring into inconsequentiality.
The morning is a different flavor. It's a work day. We take a cab to an audio session on Denmark Street, an iconic address in British popular music that I know from the Kink song of the same name. Founded in 1954 by a band leader slash session violinist named Ralph Elman, who played on I Am the Walrus and Within You and Without You, Tin Pan Alley Studios is located in the sub-basement of number 22. Johnny's here in this high-tech cave to direct a 30-second TV promo for a contest. The clip combines narration and footage of an island getaway over a cabaret Voltaire loop. Johnny dictates directives to an engineer who executes the commands. At his suggestion, one of the technicians, an Englishman with long hair and a hyphenated surname, picks up an electric bass and comes up with a sparse funk pattern with a pronounced Tina Weymouth vibe. Savory Indian takeout food is brought in, cigarettes are smoked. It takes all morning. We then head to a different studio to do a promo for an Australia Rocks competition. Score to, what else? The cool Aussie band of the moment. Midnight Oil. The novelty of all this wears off pretty quickly. And eventually I decide to fly solo. I check out the Tate Gallery and the National Gallery, take in With Nail and I, the most English of movies, and relish the simple pleasure of consuming a pint of beer in a darkened theater. And I spend hours knocking around Camden Town, listening to all my freshly made mixes on a crudely repaired bright yellow sports Walkman. One day it's pissing down rain, so I stay at the flat making tapes and waiting to hear from Bro. Eventually he calls, and I get lost and drenched, making my way over to a raw industrial rehearsal space where he and his bandmates in Mona Lisa Overdrive are jamming. Johnny is the human lodestar for a crew of singularly talented co-workers at MTV. They will all go on to make formative pieces of 90s alt-rock culture, and over the course of the week, at pubs and over dinner, I meet them all. Henrik Schiffert, the guitarist in Johnny's band, naturally named for a William Gibson novel, is a garrulous, completely self-assured 20-year-old from Stockholm who in five years will achieve indie rock glory with Whale and Hobo Hump and Slowbo Babe. Spend a few hours listening to The Sundays with Mark Pellington, an opposing Baltimorean director-producer who in five years will win the coveted MTV Video of the Year award for Pearl Jam's Jeremy. Then there's John Dunton Downer, svelte and vaguely Kennedy-esque, who is a familiar kind of wonderkind, an amazing high-energy talker in the Johnny tradition and passionately knowledgeable about Ballard, Burroughs, Salinger, and Sanskrit. He'll be the producer of 120 Minutes UK in a couple years. The guys even played sax on a record by Willie Loco Alexander, who briefly replaced Lou Reed in the Velvet Underground. Rock and roll music made the kids all yell. Jungle music in the bunker. Chuck Berry rings a bell. Whoa, whoa. Oh, yeah. 
Double D has a deep abiding love for the sick Poirot humor found in English comics like Viz, home of Johnny Fart Pants and the Bottom Inspectors, and I love him immediately. In the course of 10 days, everyone I meet through Bro, even this very posh woman we cross paths with by chance on Primrose Hill High Street, who turns out to be a former lover with a fanciful British name like Pippa Coppersmith Heaven, strikes me as in Johnny's thrall to one degree or another. Witnessing London's widespread acknowledgement of my brother's special brilliance invigorates my lifelong worship. The weekend rolls into view and we drive out to Winchester, a 90-minute drive from London with Double D and a guy named Alan, whose parents are away on holiday. Also along is a pale English girl who just needs a lift, who drinks from a carton of Ribena and upon whom I form a crush as we motor out to the countryside. At Alan's parents' house, I spring my surprise. Four hits of Uncle Mike's purple window pane. I had been praying we'd have the right time and place for it, and am thrilled the moment has arrived. We take it in Alan's parents' kitchen with Ruddle's Best County Ale, horrible stuff, and head out to this wide open, I want to call it a heath, and we have a mad old time. Something ancient in this cathedral city, inhabited since the Iron Age, calls to us leading us to mad capering and crazy speeches aimed at the starlit sky. I distinctly recall telling off the moon that night. Don't give me any of your, oh, I'm the moon shit. Oh, I'm the moon. Ho ho, the moon. Don't give me that. You're just a big, round, shiny thing in the sky. Fuck all that, I'm the moon. I'm the moon shit. <laughs> get down to any serious journal writing on the flight home. Thus far, I've only managed to jot down cursory notes on people, places, and meals. But now that I have the time and inclination to sort through the last 10 days, what I'm most moved to ruminate on is the horrible fight Johnny and I just had. It was my final night, and I figured we could take in from that great Vietnamese place he'd raved about and finish side two of No Week Shit. But as it happened, he had arranged to meet up with a young woman at a pub, I played the brother card, and he threw it back at me double, basically saying my visit had taxed him unreasonably, starting from that forced futon purchase. Nevertheless, what lingers of my London trip is the knowledge that Johnny has the coolest life in the world. Jealousy is not what I feel, more like a trace of disappointment in myself for not walking the world with his kind of swagger. In a few weeks, Johnny's in New York on business, and with a little pressure, I get him to visit the school where I teach. I want her to see what I do, maybe even recognize that some of my nobler characteristics have come to fruition. He shows up, takes in an hour of preschool activity, and has very little to say afterward, which is rare for him. We grab a sandwich and eat on a bench in Central Park. Taking note of a braided loop of colorful yarn that hangs through a buttonhole of my jean jacket, he says, what's up with the hippie look? Kind of snidely. This? Oh. One of my extended day group kids made it for me. I'm not trying to look fashionable or anything, so it really doesn't matter if I'm in step with the times or not, Johnny. Yeah, yeah. I know all about semiotics. See, I don't know a thing about semiotics. 
the science of symbols and signs. But he does, which is why he's in such high demand. In late 1989, MTV Europe is still in its infancy. Its parent company is not yet a truly global presence, and the Berlin Wall has just fallen. So my brother's timing is perfect when he pitches Buzz, a news show with an international focus that will leverage MTV's worldwide affiliates. This way, guest jeans and Nike can sell their wares in Brussels or Bangkok or Berlin. It seems obvious now, but this is a gargantuan leap for a station that had trumpeted its commercial-free status at the beginning of the decade. Johnny's pal Mark Pellington has just made an eight-minute pilot for a show called Sign of the Times, consisting of video imagery and music connected by a particular theme, and all of it put through a little blender. The bigwigs decide to mix the chocolate and the peanut butter, and Johnny and Mark are commissioned to come up with something. Now, what the suits have in mind is something basic and inoffensive. Say, a George Michael video, plus a piece on a local band, plus a couple of news packages, all tied together by the dulcet tones of Kurt Loder. Johnny and Mark, on the other hand, seek to create something that reflects the world in all its confusing, contradictory messiness. More like televised acid. It's all very post-Max Headroom, a mind-melting mix of video, news footage, interviews, Super 8, avant-garde film techniques and projections loosely secured to the chassis of a news show, with the voice of William Burroughs woven throughout as a sort of ghost narrator. You see, everything you see is alive, and everything you see means something special to you, because you see it. If it meant nothing to you, you wouldn't see it. Buzz operates at two speeds, cocaine and heroin. It begins at full throttle, with a jarring, confrontational title sequence that's like being pummeled by a jackhammer. In smack mode, words and images flicker, morph, and dissolve in sync with an otherworldly soundtrack. Undergirding the mind-blowing visuals is a genuine zeal to hip the young people of Earth to people on the artistic and technological vanguard. Word artist Jenny Holzer, the virtual reality pioneer Jaron Lanier, the radical environmentalists of Earth First, Sid Mead, the visual designer on Blade Runner, and of course, a pair of foundational Williams, Burroughs and Gibson. Johnny and Mark proudly advocate for cultural appropriation, and they gleefully plunder MTV's holding. Uno, dos, tres, cuatro. Any video that the station has ever aired is considered fair game. MTV will still be clearing rights to Buzz's usage of images six months after the show is canceled. As Pellington later explained, They said, look, you're weird, you're depressing, and you're expensive. And you can't be all three. MTV markets the show as best it can, but it's too much, too soon, too fast. Each of the 13 episodes of Buzz season one airs exactly once in the States in the spring of 1990. 
I own VHS copies of the whole series and have viewed it multiple times by now, but I'm adamant that Amanda and I watch the show when it's on the actual airwaves, in the purgatorial time slot of 10pm on Sunday. The future is the past in reverse. At Buzz, we think the future is a better key to the present than the past. And guess what? There is the future. And it's here all around us. Welcome to Gene's Splice. Samplers! Biotechnology. Laptop computers. Coming on after the top 20 video countdown, and followed by yet more music videos, Buzz reveals those videos for the slick advertisements they actually are. Yet it's so familiar to me by then that I can no longer be shocked by it. Still, I savor the micro bits of inspiration that raced past my synapses on the first, second, and third viewings. Transplant my head onto another body. Amanda, knowing how much it means to me, murmurs her approval, but I sense she finds it all a little befuddling. Hey, who wouldn't? Then the show just disappears, not only from the airwaves, but seemingly from collective memory. Even as some shushed part of my mind wishes it was a little more approachable, maybe. It never really clicks that the point of creating a show like this is for it to actually catch on and, like, make money. I figure 13 episodes is a whopping load of buzz that will stand for all time. Johnny never mentions that by episode 10, he and Mark had known the show would not be renewed. He says they didn't get it. They're dicks. Fuck them. The show is ahead of its time. And he has bigger fish to fry. To the MTV moguls, Buzz might well have looked like a colossal waste of 1.3 million pounds at the time, but the investment was well recouped eventually. For one thing, they got a bead on the power of the word Buzz, which predated the show in the form of Buzz clips, but which would soon be slapped on all things new and cool, like the MTV Buzz Bin, where you'd catch avant-garde videos made by buzzworthy acts, like Fiona Apple, Radiohead, Bjork by a new wave of soon-to-be Hollywood directors, Spike Jones, David Fincher, Jonathan Glazer, and even MTV Buzzkill, a hidden camera prank show precursor to the much more popular Punked. Beyond that, MTV's look, its promos and bumpers, and its increasingly caffeinated pace began to move in an extremely Buzz-like way as the decade wore on. On the one hand, it's criminal that Buzz isn't held in the same high nostalgic esteem as stuff like The Real World and Beavis and Butthead. Less radical programming that predicted whole genres of the cable TV ecosystem on the rise. But the timing was off, and the kinder, gentler version of Buzz that survived its first season still probably wouldn't have limped on for a half decade to be a general touchstone, the brain-melting lead-in to Eon Flux cartoons that it was destined to be. You can see the future and still misread the bus schedule. Next up, I'll introduce you to my other friend Johnny, Johnny Depp. Check out IamTheFly.org for a mix of songs excerpted here and more. And if you liked what you heard, please subscribe and tell a friend.